The title of today's sermon are, The Reports of His Death Are Greatly Exaggerated, taken from Matthew 27, verses 27 through 66. Today's going to be a little bit different because I promised I would finish up Matthew before I left, and um, so we're having to take a little bit of a bigger bulk of verses today. I hope you give me a little bit of grace if I go longer than normal, but uh, I'd like to ask God to be our guide in our study of his precious word. So would you bow with me in prayer once again? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being your children of knowing Christ personally, having invited him into our lives, receiving the free gift of eternal life. Thank you, Father, that we don't have to work, that we don't have to earn your righteousness, your favor, your blessing, but you give it to us freely. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who who we will see died for us, suffering the penalty for his sin, for our sin. Help us, Lord, to reaffirm that in our hearts. And now, Lord, to walk in harmony with your will and way. May this message from Matthew be part of the process that changes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Most people in America and the world are highly influenced by the films that come out of Hollywood. I think all of us would agree with that. Some of that influence can be good. Well, a whole lot of it really is bad. But I'd like you to consider this morning how many of the so-called Christian films have biased people against the biblical concepts that we will look at in the historical record from Matthew. For example, you can see behind me uh, the horrible film The Last Temptation of Christ from the 1980s and how it negatively influenced people. While this was not a, per se, Christian film, it did shape many people's opinions of Jesus. In the film, he's depicted as an imperfect man who struggles with fear, doubt, depression, lust, and an unwillingness to even do his Father's will. They even presented Jesus in this film, imagining himself in all sorts of nefarious sexual escapades. I think they mixed up Jesus with Harvey Weinstein, The outrage amongst conservatives was palatable, and it still received praise from the liberal denominations for its truth in presenting Jesus as a man. The producers tried to temper that criticism by including the disclaimer, this film is not, and I quote, this film is not based on the Gospels, no kidding, but upon the the fictional exploration of the internal spiritual conflict within Jesus. Because of that vulgar, unscriptural portrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ, most right-minded believers rejected it. However, that was not the case with the next blockbuster film. In 2004, Mel Gibson wrote and directed the so-called Passion of the Christ. In reality, it was nothing more than a Roman Catholic version of the Via Della Rosa, Catholicism's primary focus, as the film is, is the last 12 hours of Jesus' life. You, for example, see when you go to a Roman Catholic church, and uh, I mean no disrespect, but there you find Jesus hanging on the cross. 
when in reality we know that Jesus is no longer there nor in the tomb. He's a risen Savior. This tomb portrays Jesus' last hours in a very extreme and graphic way. It polarized the Christian community, with some seeing it as a new Christian classic, while others thought the extreme violence in it, as I did, was objectionable and excessive. Some even charged the film with being anti-Semitic. While both films have in, what they both films have in common is they come and they drew large audiences and did raise the subject of Jesus' death. However, the gratuitous violence in both films took taking pains to portray Jesus as a hapless victim rather than our willing substitute. The truth is, people love violence. Hollywood knows that, and it sells tickets. The men loved the violence and the passion of the Christ, but the women loved having their heartstrings pulled. Do you know what many preachers practice today? The same thing. They use their pulpits to promote the violence that was done against Jesus as a way to work on the emotional life of people. Preachers often needlessly dwell on the sickening details of Christ's passion. Why? Why? I think they do it for two reasons. They, They know it appeals to the flesh of most American males who grew up with a John Wayne model of manhood, and secondly, because the ladies are prone to be moved by the compassion of an innocent man being hurt in such deep ways. Currently, um, we don't have any new films on the horizon, but there's always next year, right? Now, Jesus certainly did suffer barbarous and brutal treatment, and it was heart-rendering. That being said, It's quite surprising when you read the details of the gospel writers concerning the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, Matthew passes right over those details, hardly even mentioning a word, just saying Jesus was crucified. Then he makes a beeline to the reason Jesus was crucified so that his readers then and now will understand the purpose of the passion. This morning, we're going to be examining the passion of Jesus. And we will look at this from Matthew's perspective as he writes to his Jewish brethren. Matthew's goal is to present Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel to send a Messiah to redeem his chosen people, Israel. As you know, as a people, Israel, as a nation, rejected Jesus Christ as their king. While individuals within Israel did recognize who Jesus was and did receive the promise of eternal life, the truth is the nation Israel rejected Christ. Now, during his ministry, Jesus dealt with Israel as a nation. But in the New Testament era, God is dealing with individuals. So this text culminates the ministry of Jesus and the rejection of Christ as the aforementioned Messiah. We begin our look at the events that took place on that day, beginning at 9 a.m. Friday morning. If you have your Bible, would you open to Matthew chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 27, and uh, we will be picking up in verse 27. 
If you need to examine this in the Pew Bible, I believe it's found on page 994 of our Pew Bible. or somewhere around there. It had been a long and sleepless night for Jesus and for his disciples. As you'll recall, he was arrested and he was dragged from the Mount of Olives up the Hinnom Valley to the city of Jerusalem, and he was taken to several locations to be tried. At those places, he suffered terrible abuse. However, that is not what Matthew chooses to focus upon. His emphasis is, and I hope you understand this, underscore it and realize it, that Matthew's focus is upon the mocking of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the King that God sent to Israel. These tormentors ridiculed him. They called him names. Ironically, inadvertently, they promoted exactly who he was. But they would use Christological titles in a negative sense, such titles as the Son of God, the King of Israel. All of these simply reinforced the truth about who Jesus claimed to be. They taunted him. Then they dressed him as a fake monarch. They made fun of his claim to be the Son of God, telling him to come down off the cross at, at the climax of all of these events if he was really the Son of God. However, their mockery only served to highlight the plight of his legitimacy and his mission. Well, with that as my introduction, let's pick up, as I said, in Matthew 27 and on page 982 of the Pew Bible. Uh, I begin in verse 27 where Jesus is being mocked and tormented by the soldiers of the governor, as we read in the text, who took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort, that's 600 men, around him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe upon him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they placed it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying... Hail the king of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and they began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. In this text, we see the contempt of the pagan soldiers as illustrative of the rest of humanity for Jesus They viewed him as being a weak and impotent man. The mocking begins by the stripping off of his clothes, as well as his dignity. They dressed him in a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns, and they gave him a reed scepter. Finally, they spit in his face and then beat him about the head. Their cruelty is repeated at each step of the way that Jesus goes from trial to trial. Now we're privy in verse 32, to the beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they were coming out from the praetorium, that is, and they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to carry his cross. You see, every condemned man was required by the Romans to carry the cross beam, not the whole cross, just the cross beam, to the place of crucifixion. The victim would then be attached to the vertical beam with the ropes or nails as it laid on the ground, and in this case, 
it was nails as recorded by John in his gospel. The cross beam then tied to the vertical shaft was then dropped into the hole, which created much harm to the individual's hands and feet. Jesus, under the weight of the cross beam, however, after all of his beatings and mistreatment, was unable to bear it. So he dropped the beam and the Romans pressed Simon into service. Simon was probably a Jew from Libya in North Africa. He got the privilege of carrying the beam the rest of the way to Golgotha. He was just a simple peasant, Jewish peasant, visiting the city because of the requirement to attend the Passover, but he never envisioned that he would receive a welcome like this. They weren't giving him the key to the city, they were giving him a cross to bear. After this scourging Jesus had received and all of the mistreatment at each one of his files that we uh, each one of his trials as we've studied, he was in, in a weakened condition and unable to carry the crossbeam. So Simon did it to the place of execution. And we read in verse 33, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, Simon must have set the beam down, and then the process began of affixing Jesus to the vertical crossbeam, and Simon stepped back, and he became a spectator of this horrible event. The crucifixion was held at Golgotha, which had no skulls, no cemetery. It wasn't even a place designated for executions. However, many scholars have come to believe that it was a hill that looked much like a human skull. It's still there. Uh, We've visited it the times that I've been in Israel, each and every time, and that is where there's Gordon's Calvary is located, which is right next to this place called Golgotha, which looks like a human skull. Many believe it was there that these events transpired, but others, and there's a lot of archaeological um, finds that substantiate this, that it was at the present-day location of the Holy Sepulchre in the city of Jerusalem, but the walls were outside of it at that time. You can see in this picture the hill called Golgotha was uh, a road was on a main road that entered into the city. They have buses parked in front of it now. But at the time of the Passover, people would be streaming in and out of the city on this road. So the Romans chose this place to execute the three men, putting them on crosses high above the city so that all of the folks could see it as they came for the Passover celebration. Now, the word Golgotha is not in Greek or Hebrew, but it is in Aramaic, and it means skull. The Latin word from which it is derived is Calvaria. Obviously, that's where we got our term that we use, Calvary. The soldiers prepared Jesus by nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. As we read in verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. This wine and gall was meant to be as a narcotic to cover some of the pain that he was suffering. Some look at it as an act of compassion, but really it was a quite cold-blooded thing to do. It was a trick that they were playing on him because gall was a kind of undrinkable poison. If drunken enough um, of volume, it would first dull the pain 
and then kill the condemned. It was a quicker way for the condemned to die. That way, these Roman soldiers who were just doing their duty that they didn't like to do could go back to their barracks quicker. So we read in Psalm 69, the the, uh, substantiation for this from hundreds of years before when the psalmist says, They also gave me gall for my food and for for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Matthew only briefly notes the things that take place at the crucifixion. We're not even told by Matthew that he was nailed to the cross. But he does show the dividing of Jesus' clothes by the soldiers. There's no dramatics with Matthew. There's no sensational journalism, no fake news, just the sordid details of the events that he wanted to highlight for his Jewish brethren. Or as Joe Friday would say, Just the facts, ma'am. He gives us the facts, saying, When they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. As you might already know, the victim's belongings belonged to the execution squad. It was kind of like a reward for doing this dirty detail. Or it might be because the psalmist wrote hundreds of years earlier In Psalm 22, which I've given you to read when you go home, they divided up my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Wow! Every detail of the crucifixion of Jesus is affirmed, confirmed by the prophets hundreds of years before crucifixion was even known as a means of death. Now, Matthew doesn't spend, as I said, a lot of time talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. He simply mentions it as an aside. He totally focuses the involvement of various individuals in the crucifixion of Jesus rather than the act itself. For example, in verse 36, we see the soldiers sat down and they began to keep watch over him there. Remember, hundreds of people are watching this crucifixion. Thousands, perhaps, are streaming by seeing these Awful events take place because Israel would swell with two million people during Passover. They would be entering the city and coming out. And Matthew chooses to focus on the pagan Roman soldiers who are watching this event as they sit underneath the cross. They'd done their job. Now they simply acted as a deterrent from anyone who would try to intervene with the criminal's death during the crucifixion. They, they simply watched the helpless victims dying on the cross. They, I believe they scrutinized every action and reaction of those that they hung on these crosses. Now, above the head of Jesus, and I assume the other criminals, was printed the crimes which they had committed against the Roman state. Over the head of Jesus, we find his crime. It says, verse 37, Above his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, as Jesus had made his way from the praetorium to the place of execution, there was a placard that had this written on it, and it was either carried by a soldier or it was hung around Jesus' neck. The sign told the people what he had been found guilty of. What was that? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Jesus is the King of the Jews. Truth, for sure. You have to read between the lines, however. The charge is that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. 
To a Jew, that was the equivalent of proclaiming yourself to be the expected Messiah. But to the Romans, it was just a treasonous charge against the empire, which brought with it a capital crime. So they executed him on a public highway for all to see on the charge of sedition and we know it was written in three languages because one of the gospel writers tells us that. Pilate made sure that everyone would be able to read it, so it was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Now, Matthew abbreviates his recording of that statement, but as you can see behind me, there's a, uh, a composite statement of all four gospels that would read this way. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When the members of the Sanhedrin who had plotted against Jesus and got him crucified by going to Pilate saw this, their heads exploded. In one mad dash, they all made their way to Pilate's palace and demanded he take down this blasphemous sign. Well, John tells us that Pilate, who had it written, let me move this down a little bit, getting a little excited here, had the charge written in this manner, told them that he wasn't going to remove it. What I've written, I've written. So despite the pushback from the religious elites, who had been a pain in the keister to Pilate, he refused to buckle the knee this time to them. Now, the, the, the words were written as a warning to any would-be insurrectionists. This is what you will suffer if you go against Rome. Pilate actually is promoting the claim. (laughs) Ironically, it's doing the exact opposite of what he intended. Jesus is being proclaimed for who he is. This is the king of the Jews. Please note, this sign was hung above his head which tells us the cross must have looked like that on our wall. A T rather, a small T rather than the capital T. Now, in the next verse, we see that Jesus was not alone. For verse 38, again, focuses on the other people in this event. It says that at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. There's an interesting Greek word that doesn't come clear to us in an English text. It's the Greek word for robbers. Matthew uses the word letes. That can be translated either as robbers or as the great ancient Jewish historian Josephus translates it 25 times in his work, zealot or insurgent. So these two gentlemen who were dying with Jesus, were probably the buddies, the pals of Barabbas, because we know he was a revolutionary. He was a zealot. He was an insurgent. So just like Barabbas, they were probably murdering thieves who stole from their fellow Jews to finance their wicked agenda of overthrowing Rome. Isaiah predicted this in chapter 53 when he said that the Messiah would be numbered amongst the transgressors. Interesting. However, the people took the fake placard at face value, believing that all three were insurrectionists, lumping Jesus together with them. That is undeniable. We read in verse 39 that those who passed by hurled abuse at him. They had suffered underneath the Romans and 
They weren't happy about insurrectionists who brought pain on them. Wagging their heads, we read, saying, Who are you to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from that cross. Wow. Wow. Here we see that the cross not only revealed God's love to the world, but it revealed man's depravity in the world. The mocking of Jesus by the crowd here is symptomatic of man's total depravity. Matthew focuses on the mocking of Jesus, first by the soldiers and now by the crowd. He's he's denigrated, I should say, for his so-called threat. Do you remember that to the to the temple. He was going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. But as you know, that's fake news. Jesus wasn't speaking of the physical building that was on the hill called Mount Zion, but of his own physical body. You'll recall at the preliminary hearings that took place in the middle of the night illegally, the Sanhedrin came up with this exact charge. Somehow, that news was leaked out by the Department of Justice to the news media, and everybody in red flyover country had heard, and this has been repeated and repeated as being the gospel truth. Surely this guy must be a fake. He said he was going to destroy the temple, and there it is. He didn't rebuild it. If he is the Son of God, as he says, Then let him come down from the cross. Do another miracle. We've seen you save other people. Save yourself. But here he is, in front of their eyes, dying an ignominious death. Jesus couldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. Notice the sentence begins with the all-important conditional word, if. You know that because I mentioned it quite regularly. The Greek grammar tells us that this sentence beginning with an if is the beginning of a first-class conditional clause in which the speaker assumes the statement to be true. He didn't do what he said he would do. That's their argument. That's the statement of an unbelieving rationalist. We're surrounded by them in our culture today. I will believe only that which I can see with my own eyes. I must see before I will believe. It's also the same language of the religious liberal. They shout to Jesus, come down from the cross, save yourself. You saved others, but you can't save yourself, can you? They hate the offense of the cross. They must rid themselves of it. But for us who believe, the cross is central, central to all that we hold dear. The cross is a stumbling block to the unbeliever, but to us it is the power unto salvation. The caveat here is that the believer will always swallow the false claim. Even if Jesus did come down from the cross, they wouldn't have believed. We believe because he stayed up on that cross until the resurrection Now, in verse 41, we see the mocking of the religious elites. He's been mocked by the soldiers. He's been mocked by the crowd. Now he's mocked by those who hated him the most, the religious elites. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the king of Israel, he is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
baloney. He trusted in God. Let him rescue himself now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Wow. Just like the crowd. This group of worldly, powerful men, the lawyers, taught the victim. I ask, where's the compassion? Don't they have any feelings? No, they want him dead. Come on, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, get yourself off that cross. You see, Jesus claimed to have a position that was privileged. If you are the Son of God, if you are in that privileged position, then come down. But that would have negated the purpose of his mission coming to earth. Remember the devil did the exact same thing to Jesus with the three temptations in the wilderness? Remember the temptations that Jesus faced in the garden? He's rejected all of those and he rejects this outright now. But there's one thing that's clear about these taunts. The Israelites truly understood his claim to be deity. He was mocked, first by the pagan soldiers, then by the crowd who had been misled, and now by the religious elites who have the full knowledge of who Jesus really is. Now, in verse 44, we see the mocking of Jesus is by the robbers who had been crucified with him. They were insulting him with the exact same words. Matthew has shown us that Jesus was mocked by the complete nation of Israel from top to bottom, from head to toe. Now he shows us the death of Jesus and that it was in total harmony with the will and purposes of God. His claim to be the Messiah is validated. How? Only he could possibly fulfill all of the requirements as found in the Old Testament to be the sacrifice for mankind. Matthew shows us that when he reveals the five momentous events that took place at the cross, just as predicted in the Old Testament. Remember, these predictions are hundreds, nay, some thousands of years before, a thousand years before. Now in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Now these things could slip by with little notice, but notice darkness It says, came over the land that lasted from noon, Eastern Standard Time, to 3 p.m. In Mark's Gospel, we learn that Jesus was crucified at 9, or at the third hour, Roman time. Three hours on the cross, and then from noon until 3, the skies become pitch black. Jesus is enveloped in the obscurity of darkness. Now, you'll surely recall back in chapter 2 of Matthew when we studied it, that the gospel of Matthew began with Jesus' birth. Did you know, take note what happened there? A supernatural light hung over the manger where Jesus lay. And the people came and they witnessed the work of God, bringing this salvation of humankind, the one who came to save the world, seeking the lost, and he was illuminated in bright light. Now the witnesses can't see a thing. His death is concealed from them by supernatural darkness. It is at this time 
that the Son of Man is separated from his heavenly Father. He's completely alone on the cross for three hours. This was a totally new experience for him. He'd never been cut off from fellowship with his Father. Now, the rationalists and the liberals will tell you that this was an eclipse of the... Oh, we can explain that. There was an eclipse of the sun with the moon passing in front of it, a solar eclipse. But that, my friends, we know is totally impossible. Why? The Passover occurs only at the full moon. No darkness could have caused such an eclipse by a solar eclipse. The timing here is supernatural, just as it was at Bethlehem. Some like to argue about the meaning of the phrase, all the land. Did this darkness encompass the whole world, or was it restricted just to the land of Israel? I answer that by saying, who cares? Don't miss the point that's being made here. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Matthew is showing us that the loss of fellowship that Jesus experienced with his father was something he'd never experienced before. This was hell on earth for our Lord Jesus. The three longest hours in human history. This was far more torturous than any physical pain they could inflict upon his body. He had always had perfect communion between him and his father in the past, but that was now broken. The darkness was so black that even creation was affected during those three hours from noon, Eastern time, to 3 p.m., the brightest and hottest part of the day in the Middle East, God's wrath was poured out on his son. He was the suffering servant. Darkness covered the land of Israel. Now, the Old Testament speaks about darkness a lot as a judgment of God. Let me read a couple of verses for you. Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was darkness over the land of Egypt. Even a darkness that could be felt. Remember, that was one of the plagues? Then God said to Amos, excuse me, to Amos, It will come about in that day that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. There it is. It's fulfilled. What God spoke to Amos was fulfilled when darkness came upon the earth. Darkness was a covenantal curse brought by God on those who refused to do his will. Darkness is a symbol of God's wrath being poured out, in this case, on Jesus as the sin bearer. Because God is holy, he cannot overlook sin. It must be punished. Jesus had no sin of his own. He was sinless. But he took the sins of mankind upon himself. The judge looked down upon the earth and saw the sins of man placed on the sinless substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he withdrew from his son. That separation was what Jesus feared the most. And at 3 p.m., about the ninth hour, we read in verse 36, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sapakathana. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you even imagine the agony of this 
Jesus being alone in the darkness, on the cross, suffering. That's what caused him to cry out. Jesus, speaking partially in Hebrew, partially in Aramaic, and partially in Greek, exclaims his total frustration over the brokenness of fellowship with his Father. Jesus paid the highest cost imaginable for the sins of mankind. Paul puts it this way in the epistles. He made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Let me, I messed that up a little. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God poured his wrath and judgment out upon Jesus Christ as he hung on that cursed tree. Listen to the anguish of his cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't the physical sufferings, but it was experiencing sin in his mortal body for the first time as our substitute. Jesus felt forsaken by his Father. However, it was not God the Father who forsook him. It was God the Judge who separated himself from sin. Please notice the change in relationship that we see in this text that's illustrated by the vocabulary very clearly. Jesus does not call the Almighty God his Father in this text. He calls him God. 170 times in the gospel, Jesus speaks or prays to his Father, God Almighty, calling him my Father. 21 times Jesus calls on his Father in prayer. This is the one and the only time he does not. He calls him God, showing that their intimate relationship had been broken by a judicial ruling and not by the loss of paternity. His words in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, are translated as my God, my God in English. Now, some people hearing that mistook what they thought they heard and they turned off their beeping hearing aids and they thought they heard the name Elijah come out from the Lord Jesus. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling himself Elijah. The scriptures suggest that Elijah, if you go back to those passages in which we find him, probably did not experience earthly debt, but instead was translated directly into the heavenlies. Bud, can you help him turn that off, please? Or someone... So Elijah didn't die, but went directly to the heavens. And so many of the rabbis of the day taught that Elijah would send angels down to help those who were in trouble, thinking that Jesus used the term Elijah and was asking God to send him help to get him off the cross. But it was only because, really, the dehydration had parched his lips and his throat. So someone quickly ran to get some wine vinegar to moisten his lips. Immediately, we read in verse 48, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour grape and put it, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let's see whether Elijah will come to help him. 
And Jesus cried out once again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. Jesus died. This is spoken of in such a low-key manner, you might miss it completely. Matthew uses the phrase, he yielded up his spirit. He didn't kick the bucket. He didn't die. He yielded up his spirit. That's speaking of his human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. When Luke and Mark speak of this event, they use the expression that he breathed out his last This was the deliberate act of the Lord Jesus voluntarily giving up his spirit to his father. Jesus died like no other man ever died. He voluntarily sacrificed himself for humanity. He could have called angels to take him off that cross. He could have called armies, legions of angels to defend him, but he did not. John tells us in chapter 10, quoting from Jesus, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. For I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. There it is. There it is. Our Lord voluntarily suffered God's wrath for humankind's sin. His body became cursed on that tree for you, and you, and you, and you, and for me. Once that payment was made, The curse had been triumphed over by his death. He'd finished his mission. Yes, his heel had been terribly bruised, but the serpent's head was crushed. Jesus yielded up his spirit to his Father. Now the second momentous event, first was darkness, now the second one that took place when Jesus died on the cross is in verse 51. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I've personally visited the, the temple site, the temple mount. I've been up and I've gone through the mosque, the dome of the mosque that's up there. Uh, it's ugly. Oof. On this day, the temple was in all its glory when something unbelievable occurred. The veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple 30 feet long, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, but more importantly, 18 inches thick, tore from top to bottom at the moment of his death. The curtain that divided all of mankind from the presence of God was divided in two. The outer world could now see into the presence of God. Back in Exodus 26, God had instructed the builders to make a veil for the doorway of scarlet material of fine, twisted linen. And the skillful workers made it. So then, this could not have been done by a man. It had to be an act of God. Now, most Bible students understand this veil as being symbolic of Christ's body. When Christ was being torn, his body was being torn on the cross, the veil was rent in the temple. The moment the penalty had been paid for mankind's sin, the way was open for all of humanity to enter into the very presence of God. The Holy of Holies was where God's presence resided for Judaism. This is confirmed to us by the writer of the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. For by one sin, excuse me, 
For one by one offering, Jesus had perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, all time would be in the past and into the future. Where there is forgiveness, there's no longer any need for an offering for sin. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place, there's no longer a curtain that divides it, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. There it is. That is his flesh. We have a great high priest. So then, so then, so then, so then, let us draw near, says the writer of Hebrews. Listen, my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no longer any need for temples, for priests, for altars, for tithes, or sacrifices. Jesus finished our justification at the cross. Think about it. The Israelites only had direct access to the Almighty once a year by one man, the high priest who would enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And if lightning didn't strike him because he was not cleansed correctly, he would die. And they'd pull him out with a rope that was tied to his leg. But that's no longer the case. Oh, there it is. Let me try that again. But that's no longer the case. Jeez. I thought by the time I left, you guys would have this down. (laughs) Apparently not. That was no longer the case. Since Christ's death made possible for all men to access God, Jesus Christ abrogated the need for pouring out of sacrificial offerings at the temple. Jesus Christ became our mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. His blood atoned for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He didn't die Multiple times, as we see in the Mass, he died once for all. The, torn was veil, the, the veil was torn, symbolic of man's access to Almighty God. You can enter into the holy place anytime you want by speaking directly to the Almighty. The old system under Judaism was dead abrogated by his death. A new and living way had been opened. Rather than the way of works, which leads to death, the way of grace, which leads to life. Paul states this clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of the release of the bondage from death of the Old Testament saints that were held in Abraham's bosom. Paul writes, when Jesus Ascended on high, he led a host of captives, that is, those in Abraham's bosom, and he gave gifts to men. Now the expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth to get them? Jesus redeemed all of those who had been waiting patiently in paradise for their release from bondage. He paid the price necessary for their feet freedom by dying for them at the cross. Remember, Old Testament saints looked towards the cross. New Testament believers looked back to it. We're going to celebrate that here in just a few moments. And then he went into the lower depths of Hades and retrieved those that were waiting. Jesus collected all of those saints who rightly belonged to him, for he had paid their ransom. 
Then he led the captives out of bondage to freedom. The old dispensation was finished. The veil no longer concealed God from man. No longer did anyone need a Levitical priest. No longer did anyone need to bring animal sacrifices, for Jesus paid the debt once for all. Now the writer of Hebrews, again, comments on this, saying of these things in the past tense, for there was there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand, the table, and the sacrifice, sacred bread, and then there is the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Since we now have a great high priest who has passed through to the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There it is. Just as Jesus Christ said it would happen. That which separated the Levitical system, the veil, has now been torn in half. And soon the temple itself would be torn down. All of this, the darkness and the veil being torn into, foreshadows what's coming in 70 AD. The destruction of the city of Israel, of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. The third momentous event that took place on the cross when Jesus died was an upheaval of nature. The ecosystem was simpatico with Jesus' death, as we see in verse 51. An earthquake strikes. The earth shook and the rocks were split, says the text. As the creator of all that there is in the universe, the creation felt his death. The physical plant that we live in responded to his death. I'm reminded of the quaking at Mount Sinai when the law was delivered to Moses by God. You'll remember the earth shook at that time. Here at Golgotha, as the demands of the law are satisfied, the curse of the law is abolished and the earth shakes. I'd like to read for you from Hebrews chapter 12, but I can't. It's just way too long. So I offer a simple excerpt for you. For you have not come to a mountain, Mount Sinai, that cannot be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom, to whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet, to the sounds of words which which sound was sound of those who heard, begged that no further word be spoken to them. Stop it! Stop the light show! Stop the, the moving of the earth! Stop it! For they could not bear the command. I added that little part there. If even a beast touches the mountain, anybody that touched the holiness of God on that mountain, it says, will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and to God, the judge of all. There it is. There it is. And to the spirits of the righteous are made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of a better sacrifice than the blood of Abel. The earth quaked. The law was fulfilled. It was all one and done through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Now, 
Joel speaks of this in Joel chapter 3. We read there, The Lord roared from Zion, and the heavens and earth trembled. And Nahum 1, The mountain quaked because of him, and the hills dissolved, and the earth was upheaved in, its pre- in his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath, God's wrath, is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. I could read a bunch of other examples for you, but you get the idea. The death of Jesus produced a supernatural quaking of the earth, besides the darkness that came over it. Now in verse 52, we see the result of this. We see the result of this. Maybe you've never had this pointed out to you, but look at verse 52. As a result... The tombs were opened. Praise God! And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life. Wow, that's exciting. The Bible uses, as you know, sleep as a euphemism for separation by death. Christ awakened those saints from days gone by who were sleeping and waiting in Abraham's bosom, paradise, if you will, to come to life again, to wake up. That, my dear ones, is a resurrection, not a resuscitation. Notice in verse 53 that they were coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, and they entered into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and many, and appeared to many. Wow. Wow. The earthquake shook, causing the fourth momentous event, the resurrection of Old Testament saints. I believe these are the saints who died in the previous dispensations. They are the ones that Hebrew 11 talks about as being in the faith. They were looking forward to a better life, a better country, a heavenly one, says the text. Their hope had now come to fruition, and their graves were opened, and they came forth. I find it important that Matthew, who is writing to Jews, is the only one that includes this in his gospel. He's writing about the dead Jewish saints coming back to life. Why would some pagan in Thessalonica care about it? They didn't, so Luke didn't include it in his. Who would have been interested in the fate of the Old Testament believers? Grandsons, great-great-grandsons, children of those who had died in the faith. Now, we learn that after being resurrected, they appeared to many in the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine some of the conversations? Hey, isn't that Uncle Shmiel walking by? I thought he passed 25 years ago. Maybe it's a body double like Melania has. The faithful dead freed from prison in paradise by the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That predicts our resurrection at the end of this dispensation. Just think about it. The thief who died on the cross, you know, at first made fun of Jesus and mocked him, but then expressed belief, right? Just think about him. He walked into Sheol, probably hand in hand with Jesus. He passed go and collected his $200 multiple, uh, monopoly bucks. Passed straight from Sheol to heaven. Isn't that awesome? One of my favorite icons at Dallas Seminary, where I went to um, school, wrote this about these resurrected saints. They, the resurrected Old Testament saints in this passage, function as a fulfillment of the feast of the first fruits of the harvest. 
They are a token of the coming harvest. Just as the Jewish people would bring a handful of grain to the priest at the temple, the resurrections of these saints is a token of the coming harvest when all of the saints will be raised to life. The death and the resurrection of these saints from the past ensures and ushers us that we too will be raised at the rapture when Jesus Christ returns for his church. Do you remember when Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Then Paul reminded the Corinthians, the pagans that had gotten saved in Corinth, since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. There it is. You got your confirmation. Jesus and these resurrected saints were the de facto evidence of our coming resurrection. Praise God. Now in verse 54, we have the fourth of the five events that occurred at his death. Momentous events. We read, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is a spontaneous utterance at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. These hardened Roman soldiers who had seen all kinds of unspeakable events on the battlefield are shocked with what they are witnessing. The captain of the guard, the centurion, speaking for the other soldiers with him at the cross, utters this, truly, this was the Son of God. This underscores everything that Matthew has been saying, the theme of this very book. Here we have the recognition by Gentiles of Jesus' divinity. Did these men become believers in Jesus as the Messiah? I don't know, but for sure they understood these events as they were taking place. Somebody ask Keith to turn that thing off, will you? This was the purpose of Matthew writing in his book that Jesus came to be the king the Messiah of Israel. It's ironic that he wrote this for Jews to recognize, but they reject him. Who recognizes it? Pagan Roman soldiers, that Jesus is the Son of God. As I stated earlier, Matthew doesn't seem to be interested in the gore and the violence at the cross, but he's more interested in people, and we see that again now here. We learn in verse 55 that many women who, had been, who were there were looking on from a distance, those who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the son of Zebedee. These disciples, most of whom had fled for their very lives, weren't there. But many women were. Those who had supported Jesus, not only financially, but with help with the campfires and the making of food, they followed him and they were looking on, watching from a distance. I imagine with every blow he was struck with, they winced. They remained loyal when the disciples turned tail and ran in fear. There's Mary Magdalene. That's a small village on the Sea of Galilee, Magdala. We've been there. 
Jesus cast demons out of her early on in his ministry. Then there's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Cleopas, whom we know very little about. Her name is Salome, and uh, the next is, uh, is an unnamed woman, but it was Salome. We can tell by who her sons were. They were the sons of thunder, James and John. She was married to Zebedee, and some say that she was the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. She's the one that came to Jesus, you'll recall, and asked uh, Jesus if he would give the best seats, the most power to her two sons when he came into his kingdom. I wonder what she was thinking now. She watched Jesus hang on the cross. Some kingdom, huh? Finally, Matthew tells us that Jesus' own mother, Mary, was there watching from afar. Now, it was the normal Roman practice of discarding crucified bodies of the criminals either in paupers' graves or they just tossed them into the garbage dump. However, the piety of the Jewish people would not allow this. So we learn in verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. So the sun's going down, the evening is about to ensue, and the Sabbath of the Jews was about to begin when a rich member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, comes out of nowhere. And as it's alluded to here and stated bluntly in another gospel, he was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus. He's mentioned in all four of the gospels, and from those we can uh, garner a composite of who this man was. First, Matthew describes him as being rich. Luke tells us about his character. He's a good and just man. He refused to be a part of the condemning of Jesus at the meeting of the Sanhedrin. John notes that it was out of fear that he and the other religious elites remained silent during the hearing. Mark observes that Joseph, then a very rich man, powerful man in Judaism, came forward publicly, went to Pilate, and claimed the body of Jesus. Totally unheard of. We, found else, we find elsewhere that Joseph was joined in that process by another member of the Sanhedrin, part of the ruling class. Nicodemus, who we find in John 3, also became a secret believer of Jesus. And in the next verse, the two new converts to Christ come to Pilate and they ask for the body, verse 58. They knew that if the body of Christ remained on the cross after sunset, it would be defiled and it could not be given a proper Jewish burial, according to the law. So they come and they get Pilate's permission and they, can, they go and they take the body off the cross. However, in doing so, it cost them greatly. They were both ceremonially defiled, and they could not celebrate the Passover. But they had to then think to themselves, why do I need to go sacrifice a lamb when the Passover lamb is right here? So, as I said, Joseph hailed from Arimathea, a small town near Joppa, about 20 miles from Jerusalem. That will become very important in just a moment. But for now, notice that the verse briefly states, just notes it, Then Pilate ordered the body to be given to him. The governor granted the request. John tells us that Pilate was kind of surprised that Jesus had died already so quickly. And 
he quickly gives his permission to the rich and the powerful Joseph of Arimathea to take the body. This was an extremely courageous act on the part of Joseph. It must have cost him dearly in the years that followed. But he wanted to be publicly identified with a man whom he thought was the Messiah, not some convicted man of treason. So, beginning in verse 59, we find the burial of Jesus. When Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. The two men followed to A.T., the proper Jewish burial custom of the day. They wrapped the body with a white linen cloth. They enclosed within that cloth mirth and alloys to keep the smell of the decomposing body down. This had to be done before the sun set, before the Sabbath began. So Nicodemus and Joseph took the body down from the cross by themselves, and they went to a tomb owned by Joseph, and they placed the body on a shelf in the tomb. This tomb had been bought by Joseph just in case he passed away while he was in Jerusalem on business. As you know, in the Middle East, you need to be interned within 24 hours of your death. So if he were in Jerusalem working and he died, it would take longer than those 24 hours for them to transport his body to a town 20 miles away. So he owned tombs, likely, in both cities, Being rich, Joseph could afford that. Now, there was this cliff outside of the city walls, whether it's the the celebrated place, the Holy Sepulchre, or Gordon's Calvary. We don't know for sure. But there was a cliff outside the city walls where this tomb had been hewn from. And it fulfilled the requirements of prophecy. Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before in Isaiah 53, Speaking of the Messiah's burial, his grave was assigned with the wicked men. Yet, yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He wasn't going to be buried in some ignominious pauper's grave, but here a rich man comes along and treats him as the royal king that he was, and he's interred into a rich man's grave. Now, they rolled this huge stone, you've probably seen pictures of that, in front of the tomb to close it when they were finished. This was done to protect the grave against grave robbers or anyone else who wanted to tamper with the body. The stone was enormous, and it took several men to push it into place, and then it would be dropped into a hole that would make it even more secure and difficult to get out of it. Again, Matthew reminds us of the individuals involved in this when he notes in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the grave. They're watching the whole thing go on. They're witnesses to everything taking place. They accompanied Joseph and Nicodemus from the place of the cross to the place of his burial. This detail is very important because it documents not only their love for Jesus, but for the fact that all that the scriptures say happened as it says. The two Marys knew exactly where to go on that Sunday resurrection morning, as we read in verse 52. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Notice something here. Who is it that goes to Pilate? 
The chief priests, yes, but who else? The Pharisees. We haven't seen them in the text for, for several chapters. They dropped out of this whole process. Remember, it was the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus? Here they now are again working together against a common enemy. The chief priests, who were Sadducees, worked with the Pharisees, and they had one goal, prevent the body of Jesus from being stolen and then using it to promote his resurrection. So on the next day, when they should have been working at the temple, preparing, they go off to visit the pagan Pilate and become defiled. Notice the reappearance of of the Pharisees, is to emphasize that two opposing parties can work together to get the job done. The chief priests and the Pharisees met now to confer with Pilate, or rather, to get him to do their bidding, remembering the sign that was put in front of Jesus to prove he was the Messiah, and Jesus promises them that they would have seen the sign of Jonah. They remember that sign. They remember what Jesus has said. You will see the sign. The only sign you will see is at the sign of Jonah. And they were deathly afraid then of that coming true, that his body would be gone, disappeared, stolen, and that his reputation would be bigger than ever. Instead of taking the body out to the Mediterranean Sea and dropping it off into the nether world like they did with Osama, or taking it out to the valley of Hinnom and having it consumed by the garbage fires or eaten by animals, they put it in a tomb. And this has worried them to no end. So they go to Pilate and they ask for his body. Not for only one reason, and that is to keep themselves from looking bad. They say to Pilate, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver, that's Jesus, said, After three days, I will rise again. They can't even give him a break in death. They have to call him names. Well, they were afraid that his disciples would come back, seize his body during the night, and then pretend that he had been resurrected. Now, in verse 64, They said to Pilate, please give the orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people who's risen from the dead. And that would be the last deception would be worse than the first. So the order is granted. The sealing of the tomb takes place when the Roman officials go to it and they place on it the seal of the Roman Empire that it should stay closed. Pilate throws in a little bit extra in verse, in verse 65 when he says this, you have a guard. Go and make it secure as you know how. I thought that was pretty interesting. He agreed to the sealing of the tomb. Now he agrees to the guarding of the tomb by the Roman soldiers, but it's still on their heads. You make it secure as you know how. I'm not getting involved in this was the idea that was being stated there by Pilate. Everything was in, was in its place to keep the disciples from popularizing the myth that Jesus rose from the dead on the third grade. You know, from the, from the grave. You've heard it all before. His body was stolen, he swooned, he really didn't die, he just came to life and came out of the tomb. And they went, says verse 66, and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they sealed, set a seal on the stone. There it is. Roman guard, 
Roman seal, the entrance was made impossible to get into. It would be inconceivable for anyone, friend or foe, to get at that body. However, without realizing it, it's ironic that the Jewish leaders and now the Roman government have just colluded. They've joined forces to prove that Jesus indeed rise from the dead, just as he said. Because the body disappears. Now, there are at least three classes of mockers found in this text. Okay? I've called them by their names, Roman soldiers, the crowd. But let me suggest to you that there were three classes of mockers from these people. First, there's those who are ignorant sinners. Those who refuse to examine the text. The majority of the world today is like that. They simply reject it outright. And they continue to believe their own false notions. Secondly, there were the religious sinners. Those who are trusting in their works, their false professions, their baptisms or their anointings or whatever it is. Maybe it's their traditions. Finally, there were the condemned sinners. That is, those who believed in nothing at all. They just want to go to hell to be with their friends. Listen now. If you're not saved, you fall into one of those three categories. Back then and now. Which one are you in? The tragedy is that Jesus was innocent and died on the cross. Many people saw this. They heard him. They witnessed it. They were personal witnesses to his life and his death. And many, hardened in hearts, hardened in unbelief, preferred their wickedness over the Son of God. The cross not only reveals God's love for us, but it also reveals man's depravity and stubborn stubborn hearts. How can we apply this today to our lives? First of all, never mock the Lord. I don't care if you're saved or unsaved. Never mock Jesus. Don't mock, but believe. There's a lot of jesting in our culture, which really is simply blasphemous. It's blasphemy, not comedy. Understand the true gospel, that Jesus died in your place as your substitute. No merit will ever make you right before God. Good works will never ensure your place in heaven. The penalty was paid by Christ. You don't have to pay for your sin. Jesus took your sin upon himself and died for it. What you're supposed to do is believe, trust, accept, receive Jesus as your sin bearer. Have you done that? Are you still trying to prove yourself to be a good person? I'm a do-gooder. I do all sorts of... I help the homeless. I collect canned goods. I don't, I don't ruin the ecology because, you know, the world is a god to me. I'm a tree hugger. If that's your attitude, then you fall into one of those three kinds of mockers. We no longer need priests. It's done away with. We no longer need a temple. We don't need religion. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? You have full access to God anytime. 
The throne of grace is open for you to approach any time you want. All you have to do is say, Heavenly Father. Finally, all of this series of events, his death, his burial, and his resurrection were all validated hundreds of years before by the Old Testament scriptures. It was by God's design, God's plan that Jesus Christ died in your place. Trust it. Believe it. Embrace it. Please. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this day when we can gather together as like-minded believers. Enter into your presence corporately as your body of Christ here at Lacey Chapel and praise you and worship you and be encouraged and exhorted from your holy scriptures. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.